As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi guys and welcome back to another episode. Before we kick off today, uh, I just want to say that today's episode with Isma is amazing. Um, I think her story of motherhood is wonderful. I cry in this episode, standard. Uh, she is an absolute delight and it was wonderful to meet her. Um, as you know, I have written a collection of letters on motherhood <laughs> to my sons, Buzz, Buddy and Max, to my husband, Tom, um, to my foof, to my mobile, to my body, to friends and family who have supported me all the way through, to strangers who have made me feel like a naff parent. Anyway, Letters on Motherhood, the book that I've been chatting about relentlessly online, um, is out in hardback, ebook and audiobook. Hurrah! And as a special treat to all your listeners, I've popped an exclusive early listen to the audiobook to the end of this episode. So keep listening. Uh, but first, enjoy hearing all about the incredible Isma. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. So today's guest, I got a description that said this. Describes herself as a Daily Mail's worst nightmare, a gay, Muslim, British, Pakistani, Tory-hating social worker from a working class background, not fitting in, has been the default position for most of her life. I read that and I thought, I need to talk to her. So here she is, it's Isma Almas. Hello, <laughs> thanks for having me. I mean, that's quite an intro. It is, it quite is. Quite a description. Yeah, it is, and I, I think it's a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, so you are a mum of three. Yes. Two girls and a boy. Yeah. Let's start with what your childhood was like. Okay. So my childhood was actually quite, well, I grew up quite poor in Bradford, West Yorkshire. It's quite a checkered childhood. Right. Okay. So what happened was I was born here, but I went to Pakistan with my mum and my brother and my sister. And then I stayed there till I was about five or six. And then mm -hmm. we came back to England because my dad was here. So we came to kind of live with him. And unfortunately, he kind of didn't really want us to be here. Oh, really? So the address, we turned up in England. My mum hadn't told him we were going to come back because he was a bit of a git, shall right. we say. Okay, yes. Okay. So we had an address for him where we thought he lived. So we turned up in the middle of the night at this address, having landed at Heathrow and my poor mum had kind of got us to this house to be told that he didn't live there. And that this couple had no idea who he was. No. Yeah. So we then actually ended up, I guess, homeless. Yeah. Um, and then, thankfully, my mum had the address of a family in Bradford. Um, so we kind of turned up on their doorstep and they took us in. And then we lived there until the council rehoused us. So I grew up on a council estate. Yeah. My dad would come and go. So you did find him? 
Yeah, yeah. The family that we were staying with, their dad went to kind of, was his friend basically, yeah. and he kind of went and kind of tracked him down and stuff. So my dad would kind of come and go throughout my childhood. But most it was just my mum and um, me, my brother and my sister. And we grew up on a very, very rough council estate in Bradford. At the time when, you know, there was the miners' strike on, uh, the National Front at the time had quite a big influence. Yeah, so there was a lot of racism, mm. um, a lot of poverty, and not just us, but all the families around us. On the council estate, we were one of maybe two or three Asian families. So we were quite isolated really but that was life Uh, and how did you feel looking forward to you being a grown-up and did you feel like you wanted a family did you want to be a mum oh god absolutely I really I felt broody I would say from about the age of two you know I just (laughs) I I just always always wanted kids I did I was desperate to be a mum and I think what happened was because my mum, and I don't know how she did this, but at times she would be working two or three jobs. So mm. she would come home. Um, my mum was a teacher in Pakistan, but when she came here, her, her qualifications weren't recognised here. So she couldn't teach. So mm. she kind of went to work in factories. But then in the evenings, she would be doing it's called piecework where, you know, she'd sew basically and she'd get paid maybe a penny for each piece of a garment that yeah. she made. So she would be doing that. She would leave at like five in the mornings to go to work in a factory. And what she would do is she would, because I used to have really long hair and she used to wake me at about half four in the morning, comb my hair, plait it, and then I would go back to sleep. And then my brother or my sister would wake yeah. me and then we would go get ready for school and then each of us make our own way to school. And I remember going to school age six or seven by myself, you know, across numerous main yeah. roads. But again, that was just life back yeah, then. Yeah. That is just what we did. That was normality. You know, I think for me, what I wanted to do was when I became a parent to try and be there in a way that my mum couldn't have been for us, you know, Mm. because she was surviving, basically. You know, I don't think at any point she got to kind of think kind of what do I want to do with my life? What are my aspirations? There was none of that for her. For her, it was basic survival and putting food on the table and keeping a roof over our heads and meeting our very, very basic needs. Mm. And that was a struggle. Do you feel like she sort of pushed her dreams onto you and what your life would look like or did you have the freedom to kind of go this is what I want going forward in terms of family and a husband and you know did you have an arranged marriage or no what happened was I um, went to uni and then I kind of went back home and I've always been slightly impulsive shall we say (laughs) so I ended up marrying a white guy that I'd actually only known for six weeks When when I was 21. So I finished my degree and I was like, and then met him. And um, did he literally just sweep me off your feet? Or we were each other's kind of first boyfriend and girlfriend. So we were like, oh, this is nice. (laughs) Um, And we were so young. We were 21. We met in the November and we got married in the December. Wow. So, okay. You know, we didn't really, I think, think things through. We didn't think about the reality of life, the reality of marriage, mm-hmm. um, the reality of, you know, what you have to do to make a relationship. And a relationship work, but also as well, I don't think we had actually developed as adults yeah. yet at that point either. So we got married and had two daughters together. Did you have them quite soon after? Yeah, or? we got married when I was 21 and we had my first daughter when I was 22. So, yeah. 
looking back at that time, because everything yeah. obviously happened in such a short yeah. space, and, you know, looking back, how does it make you feel? Like, what were you feeling at that point? And what was it like having a newborn when you were 22? Yeah, I think at that time I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an adult. I can do this. Whereas now I kind of look at my daughters and my daughter is 21. You know, my middle child is 21. And I think, no way. If she said, Mum, I've met somebody and we're getting married next month, I'd be like, you what? <laughs> you know, and my 25-year-old now as well. I kind of think, gosh, at that age, I had a three-year-old. Yeah. You know, and I cannot, I, I have no idea how I did that. And I think at that age, you don't actually think through mm. the implications of what having a child. Well, I didn't. You know, there might be other 21-year-olds who are far more mature than I was. You know, but I know for me, I didn't think through the implications of what having a child meant. We weren't financially stable. We didn't. I barely knew myself. I, you know, <laughs> but, you know, we did it. We made it work. <laughs> what was it like finding out you were pregnant? You were gunning for that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was like, I think when we got married, we were both like, oh, yeah, what we should do is we should travel. We should see the world. We should. I was like, yeah, we should totally do that. And then we got married. And then I was like, oh, do you know? That doesn't actually appeal to me. What really appeals to me is just having kids. And that is what I wanted. And I think I really wanted to create a family feel that I don't think that I had when I was a kid because my mum was out working. She was, you know, we were struggling. Mm. Um, so we didn't really have kind of family time, really. It was just about keeping one step ahead and the next, really, yeah. for most of my childhood. What's it like looking back at your births? I was so naive. I was so naive. You know, when I had my eldest daughter, right? Did your mum tell you anything about it? No. Okay. No. We never discussed sex. We never discussed childbirth. We never discussed pregnancy, anything like that, really. But even when I was in labour with my eldest daughter, I was 22, and I was such a prude, right? What would happen was... Oh, I was in agony. I was in such pain. I'd been induced. And they would come in, the midwife would come in, examine me. She would go out, say, I'm going to come back in 15 minutes and we'll see how you're doing. And in that 15 minutes, I would get out of bed. As painful as it was, I would put my knickers back on. Oh. <laughs> and by the time I'd got my knickers back on, she would come back in. And um, Sarah, you need to take your knickers off. I need to examine you again. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and this went on for hours. But I was so, such a prude. I was like, I must put my knickers back on. I must put my knickers back on. It feels like good manners. Yes. <laughs> British. <Yeah. laughs> it was a very exposing time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but it was just amazing to kind of meet my daughter mm. and, I think when I met her, I felt like that was what I was meant to do. Really? You know, just be a mum. Yeah, just to kind of hold her and meet her. And did you feel like an instant bond? Yeah, absolutely. I did. Really did. And I was... Yeah, I, I just remember after I'd had her, I was on the labour ward and I fell asleep. One of the midwives had said, I just breastfeed her and, you know, it's fine. Keep her in bed with you. So... I started to breastfeed her and I fell asleep. And then I woke up about an hour later and I forgot I'd had a child. And I looked down and there was this baby 
on my chest with my boob in her mouth. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? And I was like, whose kid is this? Where is the mother? What am I doing? And I was just like, Isma, this is so inappropriate. And then, and then I, something clicked and I remembered. I was like, oh, it's okay. You had a baby. This is your baby. It's all right. It's okay. Nobody panic. It's so funny the things that go through your head. Yeah, just a complete disconnect between my body and what had happened and my actual brain. Yeah. Yeah. On the sleep, though, not having oh that sleep God. during the labour yeah. and stuff. I think it does. It yeah. does funny things to yeah, your brain. Yeah, it really does. But we were so lucky with my daughter because she actually... I remember the first few weeks just being like a bit like, oh, my God, just feeling a bit sluggish and a bit kind of tired. And we were living with my mum, so we didn't have to kind of take care of any of the the housework or the cooking mm-hmm. or the functioning nice, of yeah. the, any of that. You know, cause my mum did all of that. So all we had to do really was take care of her. But I remember the first time we had to go out of the house, I think she was about two or three weeks old, and... We had an appointment to get to. I think it was like a doctor's checkup or something. And it took us about two hours to get her ready and out of the house because every time we got her ready to leave, she'd be sick. And then, oh, we need to change her again. And then she'd poo herself and it would be like, oh, we need to sort her out. And and it took us ages. Mm. Um, and I remember, again, like not having a clue, kind of every time she was sick or pooed, I'd bath her. And my mum was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm bathing her. She's had a shit. And my mum was like, you don't need to bath her every time she shits. She's going to do it ten times a day. You can just wipe her down. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Um, So, yeah, you know, it took a while for everything to kind of sink into place. But she slept through the night from being six weeks old. Oh, amazing. So that was, yeah, that was incredible. So um, she's a very good baby. Mm. How long, how, what was your age gap between your daughters? Five years. Oh, quite. Yeah. Quite a big one. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel a difference going into it second time around? Do you know, second time around, I was like maybe 26, 27. And I felt like my body just was not prepared for pregnancy at all. I felt like my body was just in agony the whole yeah, way. that's what I felt like with my third. Really? Yeah. I really noticed a difference. Like when I was pregnant with my eldest I felt I was 21 when I was pregnant and my body just kind of seemed to know what to do I, mm-hmm. ha- I had like sickness and you know I was puking up a lot but other than that I didn't you know feel mm-hmm. anything significant but with my second one, oh my god there was five years different and I felt like my body had just aged so much <laughs> and everything groaned yeah, my body hated me oh my god yeah just <laughs> any getting in out of bed going to the loo uh-huh. You know, I remember kind of being about seven months pregnant, going to stay with my brother in London and getting stuck in his bath. (laughs) And thinking, what do I do? I cannot ask my brother to come in and help me out of the bath. And I don't know how I did it, but I got myself out of that bath. But I just felt so immobile. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Fun times. (laughs) What was it like suddenly having the jump to two? I think that the biggest thing that, impacted was I'd had a cesarean with my second one so the recovery from that Mm. that took a long time I think but I didn't actually it kind of felt like you're going back to nappies but you've only just kind of we had a bit of a break between nappies and it didn't feel too significant I think the thing that shocked me was that my second daughter just didn't sleep 
And she didn't sleep till she was about three years old. And I think if we'd had her first, I don't think we'd have had any more. Really? I think that would... Whereas I think I'd had... With my eldest, I'd thought, oh, yeah, this is great. Oh, all our children are going to do this. And then, <laughs> well, you feel like you, it's you. You're the best mum ever. Yeah, And you're absolutely. doing something right. And actually, yes. the second one comes along to kind of go, no, you're not. You yeah. just fooled you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got my own personality. Um, that was a shock to my system. So, like, for three years, kind of getting up... <sighs> Four times a night, it was horrendous. Four yeah, times. yeah, three or four times a night, and just that kind of nearly broke me. Mm. Um, so yeah. How old were the girls when you and your husband divorced? Oh gosh, I think we split up maybe when the youngest was about three or four. I think. Yeah. How did you navigate that with them? Well, what we did was. When we'd split up, I was training to be a social worker. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we carried on living together until I'd finished being a social worker. And what we did was, so we lived in the same house, and what we did was we just split the week up. So on a Monday and a Tuesday, I'd have the girls, and then on a Wednesday and Thursday, he'd have the girls, and at the weekends, we took it in turns. So even though we were living together, how we did it was that if I was around on uh, a Wednesday and a Thursday, technically they were his days, mm-hmm. But I didn't have to have any responsibility for their meal times, for their bath times, for their bedtimes, um, picking them up after school, you know, all of that. He would do all the running around and I could just engage as and when. And likewise, you know, when I had them, he didn't have to take responsibility for anything. I would do all of that. But if he wanted to have a chat with them, cuddle, bedtimes, whatever, he could do that. So when um, when I'd qualified a social worker, he moved out. And um, we just stuck to the same arrangements. Then I would okay. have the girls on a Monday, Tuesday, he had them Wednesday, Thursday. And then what happened was I ended up coming out. Mm. And that must be really tricky as well with your kids. Like how, oh, they were still quite young. They though. were still quite yeah. young and they just kind of accepted it, I think. Mm-hmm. I think as long as you're okay, your kids yeah. are okay. Yeah. And, you know, as I said before, that I think whatever happens in their childhood... We just accept as normality, don't yeah. we? And just, you know, for them, they were like, oh, that's fine. You know, mum's gay now. <laughs> so, um, and he was really supportive as well. But what happened was, so we split up. He moved out. And then after about six months of us living separately, I was in the house by myself on the days that I didn't have the kids. And mm-hmm. I was really missing them. And I hated being in the house by myself. And I felt really isolated. And I hated going home to an empty house. Must be so weird when you kind of, you know that you want a family in yeah. your future. And then you get that family and all of a sudden yeah. they're not there. Oh my God, yeah. Must feel weird going to bed and stuff. God, and what, what I would do was, because I think at that point as well, I'd kind of, I think, devoted so much of myself to my kids and mm. had I think longed to have kids for so long that when they'd come along I'd just throw myself into being a mum and being there for them that I'd completely neglected all sense of who I was yeah. and what I wanted so by the time we actually split up and he moved out I maybe had one or two friends oh. and that was it you know yeah. and I was working as a social worker so I would go to work I'd come home And it was great on the days that I had the girls, on the days that I didn't. Oh, my God, I felt so lonely. I felt so isolated. And what I would do is I would finish work and then I would not go home. And what I would do is I would stay out. So I would just go see a film by myself or I would go, you know, to the 24-hour Asda. 
mm-hmm. and just wander about, yeah. try on clothes, not buy anything, just kill time. Yeah. And then I would go home at about half 10, 11, let myself in and I wouldn't go into any of the other rooms. I would just go straight upstairs and go straight to bed because I couldn't bear to go in any of the rooms. Mm. And that carried on for about six months and I was thinking, I can't keep doing this. And then I thought, I need to sell the house. Because when we'd split up, I'd kind of bought my exorcism out. And so I was thinking, right, I'm going to have to put the house on the market and, and sell it. So I talked to him about it. And I don't know how this happened. But he was renting. He was not happy with where he was, you know, it was just down the road, just maybe a mile away. And he was thinking, you know, maybe he should kind of think about moving because the house wasn't suitable for him and the girls when he had them. And I don't know how it worked out, but we basically decided that he should move back in <laughs> as my lodger. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. How long did this new arrangement last for? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) What happened was, I ended up getting with my partner. Right. Who's a lady. So she actually moved in with us. Really? Yes. So the three of us lived together. He was our lodger. Yeah. And the three of us lived together for about three years. And then it came to a natural kind of, you know, maybe we should all... Because he'd met somebody else as well. Um, towards there was a lot of adults in one house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but we didn't... We, she didn't move in. Um, so, But at the time, kind of, we all decided to go our separate ways. And the girls were actually at that point as well where 
they were okay with it. They were ready for it. So we decided to go our separate ways. And what we did was me and my partner found a house that we really liked. Um, So we ended up buying that. And then I found a house around the corner from our new house <laughs> and um, kind of said to my ex-husband, I really think you should go see this house. Yeah. And he was like, okay. So then he ended up buying that. So it was literally in the next street along. So we all kind of moved in around the same time and we kept the same arrangement on a Monday and a Tuesday, Girls With Me, Wednesday. That's pretty incredible. It was. And what was great was because the girls were slightly older by that point, they could come and go between mm. the two houses as and when they wanted. So even when they were with him on a Wednesday and a Thursday, if they wanted to, you know, after school pop down and just say, oh, mum, I just need to chat about something or, yeah. you know. So I felt that we were both kind of available to the girls as and when. So they would, even at weekends, if they're with me and they wanted to go up to him and see a film with him, they could do that mm-hmm. or go up to play Mario Kart <laughs> or whatever. You know, they could do that. Or, you know, if they were with him on a weekend and, you know, we were having family around, they would pop down for lunch and stuff. So it was just really flexible, really, you yeah. know. And there were obviously tough times within that. Yeah. You know, I think you, you know, you're kind of we're glossing over it. Yes. But there would be. And yes. I know for my mum and dad, there were yes. definite moments that were really hard to get through. Yeah. But the fact that you're you managed to get into that place yeah. where it was amicable. Yeah. It took a I think it took a lot of work. It took a lot of putting what you really wanted to say mm. to the back of your mind yeah. and you know, trying to be diplomatic and um and less impulsive. Yes. Yeah, and really just really think about what I wanted for the long term and out of our relationship we've managed to salvage some sort of friendship so do you think your job as a sort of in social care has also led to how you got you all through that because you've seen yeah. what can happen yeah I think it was probably more what happened to me my mm-hmm. own personal experience I think that was more it that I thought what happened I didn't want my girls to have the same feeling uh you know my mum never said anything bad about my dad or anything like that but you know I wanted I think it was trying desperately to cling on to some sort of family feel for them and feel that they hadn't lost a family that they still had a family and that they could still come and say oh oh, it's dad's birthday, what should I get him? And me be able to kind of help them choose something or, you know. So my daughter will take, my eldest one's off travelling around Southeast Asia at the moment by herself, which is a whole... (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) Yes. So, but anyway, so my middle one, uh, the 21-year-old's here at the moment. So, you know, every couple of weeks she'll take her little brother up to um, her dad's and... Yeah, my son calls him Uncle Chris and they'll play video games together. And yeah, and he's, you know, he's taking him to the cinema. So, you know, so yeah. How long were you and your partner together before you decided that you wanted to adopt? And why did you choose adoption? Do you know, since I was a kid, I'd always kind of thought I'd love to adopt. I'd love to adopt. And then obviously I had the girls. The girl, I'd had the girls young. And as the kids get older, this is how I felt, that I still had that need to mother. Mm. They need you in a completely different way. But I still had that need to be a mother. I still wanted to be a mum. And I I know I'll always be a mum to them, but they don't need you in the same way. And I still felt that, oh, no, I've still got that caring bit of me that needs to care for a younger child. I still need to do that. So we thought about adoption. We did think about having a child, a biological child, 
But realistically, when we thought about it, we'd have to go down the donor route, yeah. the sperm. Thinking about that, we kind of thought, okay, so the child, our child is just going to have a biological link to one of us. The mm-hmm. other one of us is not going to have any biological link. Does it actually matter to us if our child doesn't have a biological link to either of us? And we thought, no, it doesn't actually. It really doesn't. So we decided to adopt. And I think the thing that really scared me and worried me about adoption is that I worried that I wouldn't be able to love this child. Mm. It really scared me and I and I hoped I would. You hope you have it in you, but you don't actually know if you can love a child that's not biologically related to yeah. you until it happens. And what scared me as well was like sometimes my girls, especially when they were little, they would do something and I instinctively knew why they were doing it. Or they mm. would say something. And I instinctively knew what, why they'd said that or what, what the thinking was behind it. And I was really worried that when I adopted that, I wouldn't have that. And it's quite a technical process. The emotion, it? it's, you know, you feel emotional about it, but it's quite a factual process. You know, so is it quite when you when mm. you actually went? Yeah, that's what the path that we're going yeah. through. Yeah, what are those steps? Okay, um, you have to find an agency first of all. So we found an agency. Then you apply, and they are absolutely so intrusive. They look at your past relationships. They um, go interview your exes, look at your finances, your savings. How you're going to fund this new child and what your contingency plans are what your plans are for work they take up employer references look around the house talk to your family members they scrutinize your childhood your support network who is in your life who is going to support you once this child comes along what your coping strategies are they look at your attitudes towards employment towards education how you're going to promote education how you're going to keep this child safe how you're going to promote this child's welfare how you're going to, you know, keep the best interests of this child. Absolutely everything. Yeah. And the complete opposite of what happens when you have a biological child. Nobody. <laughs> it would God. be good if they did kind of check up on you, just so you can kind of start thinking, oh, yeah, I've got to do that, that, that. Okay. Yeah. And I tell you what, if that process had happened when I had had my biological girls, I wouldn't have got through. You know, <laughs> you know, that uh, uh, you're not ready. Come back in a few years. Like expected. Oh, yeah. Next year. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it's really, really interesting. They dig and they dig and they dig. And you think, ah, we had a break in between. Uh, life felt a bit busy at the time. So we thought we we're just going to put it on hold for a bit. So we took a bit of, I think, about a year off. And then we went back to it. But I think from start to finish, I think it can take about around roughly about six to eight months right so then once you're approved um then you then you can start looking for a child what were you looking for in a child do you know obviously you're faced with so many pictures then like how how do you even start going yeah yeah. that one you know you try and keep emotion out of it but God, it's so hard. hard. It's so hard. Because... It must be really difficult <clears throat> going through all that process and then find, going onto yeah. that website and going, look at all of these kids yeah. who need safety and love. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we were originally thinking, we'll go for a girl. We'll go for a girl. Because I was thinking, that's what I've done. That's, yeah. what, you know, that's what we've done. We've parented girls. We know what to, what to do. We kind of applied for a few children. or We got put forward by our social worker as well for a few children. So you might apply for one child, but this child might have maybe 80 other people 
who've already inquired. So then right. the social workers will shortlist maybe 10 families, then they might narrow it down to five, go visit those five. So sometimes we made it down to like the last four or the last three. But then, yeah, we, we ended up kind of, when we saw our son's picture, just like thinking, wow. But yeah, so we met with their social work, his social workers, and so you met with the social workers first. You don't actually meet the child until you've, well, a few days before you bring them home. So it's all done. What was that like? That is so frightening, and mm. it is very much. I saw it as like a, a bit of a blind date. Well, not even a blind date. I would say an arranged marriage, where <laughs> you don't actually get to meet them until you are married. <laughs> you know, and that is it. So. I don't know if that was helpful because it certainly prepared me that, you know, you don't expect fireworks straight away, yeah. you know, and I was kind of saying, you know, so the lead up to actually meeting and what happens is you kind of have all these days where you get to know them, know about him from the people that are caring for him. So you meet his foster carers, you can ask them loads of questions, mm -hmm. you get to see videos, pictures, um, you prepare a little book that he can look through with pictures of us in yeah. and the house, his bedroom. We did a little video. Yeah, you get to kind of know and build a picture in your mind about this child, but nothing prepares you for that moment of meeting. What was it like? Oh, my God, it was it was incredible. It was just incredible. We, we got to the foster carer's house and we were waiting outside and we were both shitting it. <laughs> we were both like, oh, my God. And we saw his foster carer the male foster carer walking down the street with him in a buggy mm. and he was two years old and my partner was like he's there he's there and I was like, oh my god oh my god and I was so scared to get out of the car and I was thinking oh my god Isma what if you don't feel anything what if you don't feel anything? What if that connection is not there? And I was saying to myself, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, you know. Um, and then we got out of the car and I was absolutely petrified to look at him. I was so scared to look at him in case I didn't feel anything. Yeah. And, and when I looked into his buggy, my heart just melted. Mm -hmm. It was just incredible. And everything that I felt when I met my birth kids, I felt for him right there. And because he'd seen the videos, he'd seen the pictures of us. The, he looked up at us and he just said, Mama. Oh, gosh. And that's what my partner was going to be called. <laughs> yeah, because he recognised her. And, you know, the foster carers had been saying, showing him pictures, yeah. showing him the video. So that was just incredible. And the social workers was there as well to try and facilitate the meeting. Our first meeting, they'd said, don't stay too long. We're just going to, the first meeting, you're just going to stay for an hour. Yeah. You're not going to overwhelm him. Don't go OTT with the touching just sit there, you're just almost there as like almost family friends and you're just going to have a cup of tea mm -hmm. and then you're going to leave. Yeah. And I was like, yes, yes, of course I'm going to do that. Well, I could not control myself. <laughs> I was all over him. I was picking him up. I was hugging him. I was kissing him. I think we stayed about two hours. Um, and it was just incredible. And we had to 
tear ourselves away from him. And I just remember then we just got back in the car. We said bye to him, got back in the car, drove to the nearest supermarket car park. I think it was a Tesco's. We just parked the car. We were both shaking and I just sobbed. And I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I think it was just relief. How long had he been with the foster care? Since birth. Right. So for him, that was his family. Yeah. That was who he loved. It was just the disconnect between it being such a happy occasion and the sense of loss for him. It yeah. felt it felt like we were abducting him. And the loss for his foster carers as well. He'd been part of their family, yeah. you know, for two years. And just, you know, driving up the M1, all these emotion that I was feeling there was such a massive disconnect because it was this joyous occasion for us and we finally got what we wanted but at the same time it's the expense of this child losing everything that he'd known in his entire life he was losing his yeah. whole life and he was on the verge of having this new one but he hadn't asked for it and that just broke my heart mm. I guess it's that thing of how do you communicate that to a two-year-old? Yeah, you can't. You can't. Must have been such a bittersweet time. Yeah, and I think for him it was to see, you know, I think what any adopted child or any child that's in foster care goes through, the sense of loss and trying to reconcile the transition in their life is massive. You know, if we think, if we're just like, as an adult, if you're suddenly taken away from your family, your partner, your parents, your kids, and if you were planted in a new house with strangers and told, forget about and the And I guess that's the thing, life. do you not, you can't keep up those ties at all it's kind you of can. A, you, you can you can you can absolutely and we tried really hard to so we you know had photo albums for him to kind of look at for, of his foster carers and we've met them since and you know he remembers them mm. and they're very much part of his history and his life and they yeah. you know and I hope they always will be how long did it take for him to settle I don't know if it was for him to settle off for me to feel like I was his mum. Mm. So I don't know if that is the same thing, but I know the first time that I felt like, wow, was the first time he went to nursery. And it was about a year after he'd been with us. And we took him to nursery. Um, you know, we hadn't left him with anyone. And I think we'd only left him for an hour without us at the nursery. So it was a very trial, yeah. you know, the, the initial introductions. <laughs> and I think he was only going to go, you know, for like two sessions a week or something. And the first time we went to collect, us, collect him and um, he saw me and he just came running up to me and threw his arms around my neck and just clung to me. And I think that was the first time that I felt like, wow, I miss mum. Oh, yeah. Must be so difficult because that's what you, that's what you want. Yeah. And did you feel like there was some sort of disconnect up until that moment? Did you feel like you weren't quite his mum? Was it just in that moment that everything fell into place? Yeah, I think so. And I think I was faking it till I made it for yeah. so long, and I was referring to myself as mummy and referring to myself as his mum. And but what you say. 
and what you feel are often two very different things. Yeah. So, and in my Edinburgh show that I did, you know, I talked about him rejecting me because he had, well, this is true for many, many adopted kids that they, they've lost their birth mum. Mm-hmm. They then go into foster care and, in foster care, primarily the, the main carer, the primary carer is a woman. They then might go into another foster home or another. So they get moved around and pretty soon they learn from a very young age that actually mummies are not to be trusted. They don't stick around, they leave you. Mm-hmm. So to protect themselves from losing yet another mummy, what kids sometimes do is they reject the female carer. And... I think because I'd been a mum, I had been the primary carer. I'd kind of always thought, that is not going to be me. If our adopted child, if our child rejects anyone, it's going to be her. Because she's not a biological parent. You know, Mm -hmm. I am. I'm, you know, very maternal. I was the broody one. Um, So it was a massive shock to the system when it happened and it was me. So I'd kind of been with him reinforcing myself as mummy. And he took his time, shall we say, to call me mummy. And how have your daughters been with your son? Oh, my God. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, just incredible. And at times, because they're like older now, they're like 25 and 21. So now sometimes if he's pissed off with me and my partner, he's almost like, ah, fuck it, I've got another two. (laughs) You know, he's like, I don't need you to, bye. You know. (laughs) So, so yeah, he's absolutely our world. Yeah. He absolutely is. Yeah. Have you has it surprised you how you feel as a mum through adoption? Yeah, it has. And what has really surprised me is I think I'd done a lot of preparation myself about that whole thing about if he behaves in a certain way, you might not instinctively know why he is behaving like that or why he said a certain thing. It's not that I know it. When he says something or does something or, you know, something happens, I completely have the same instinctive knowledge about why he's done it you know and if I say to him have you done that because of this this are you saying that because and he's like yeah how do you know (laughs) you know and because as a mother you watch yeah absolutely yeah and that bond oh my god the same instinctive bond the love everything is there more so I'd say for him than it is for my other two I won't tell them that. <laughs> yeah, he is just, I feel like I've waited such a long time for him to come along. Really? Oh my God, yeah. And I feel that, I feel in lots of ways that I've waited my whole life for him. Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah, he's completely the love of my life. Oh. Yeah. That's so gorgeous. Yeah, he is just, yeah. Oh, he's lovely. And it's amazing to think that you chose that pairing. Yeah, yeah. If at any other time that you'd have looked into it, if it was a year before, if you didn't take that break. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And what surprises me as well is, like, the little quirks that he has. (laughs) You know, what he's picked up, and I don't know, kind of nature, nurture, all of that. How unlike my other two he is and how alike me and my partner he is. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow. <laughs> uh, so 
I've got a book coming out. Okay. And it's called Letters on Motherhood. Yeah. It's, it is what it is. It says on the tin. Yeah. It's letters all around motherhood. Yeah. If you could write a letter based around motherhood, who would it be to and what would it say? I think I would write my letter to me. And I would tell myself to go easy on myself. I would tell my younger self so many things. Um, firstly, I'd tell myself that I was gay. <laughs> I would tell myself to be kind to myself, to treat myself like my own best friend, to let go of guilt, not focus on the future, not worry about the future, just focus on today. Because whilst I think I worried so much about the future, especially like my middle child, my daughter, the 21-year-old, she has a disability, so she's partially sighted. So... I worried so much about the future for her. And now when I look at her, I think, oh, my God. Isma, why were you worrying? You know, just... And I kind of think I felt so much guilt and so much anxiety. And I kind of think, let go of that. You've missed out so much on present living because you were worrying so much about the future and those moments that I missed out on. So now I try and really live in the present with my son and even with my older daughters just to kind of, you know, put my phone down. So I would tell myself not to kind of, you know, spend so much time on social media. Put the phone down. Just because you're a mum, you don't have to lose who you are. You know, you're a mum, but you're you first. You know, stay true to who you are. Do what you want to do. You still have aspirations. You still have things you want to do. You can still do them. And doing them will make you a better parent. You know, and as long as you're okay with everything you're doing, your kids are going to be okay. And um, I would tell myself to save money. <laughs> very important very important uh, and finally I ask people to complete these three sentences yeah. being a mum means means what I was born for it, was, it means what I was born to do since being a mum I have hit the menopause <laughs> <laughs> how are you finding that? oh it's shit really? <laughs> oh my god yeah I think the biggest thing is the sleep because the hot flushes throughout the night and I tried HRT but it just sent me a bit nuts right. so I came off it but yeah the hot flushes throughout the night so you wake up in the morning not feeling refreshed it feels like going back to kind of those yeah, when you have yeah, a yeah. younger child and you're mum sweats yeah. Yeah, yeah Um. so yeah it feels like going back to that Fun times ahead. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy when? Oh, I'm happy when I'm with my kids. That's so lovely. And with cake. <laughs> I mean, and marry the two together. Happy times. Perfect. <laughs> I've absolutely loved chatting to you. Like I said, I knew a little bit, yeah. but actually talking to you in depth is, is, is just brilliant. And if you take one little piece of your story away, then you wouldn't be doing this now and with your son and I just think yeah. that's incredible so thank you thank you for having me I hope you all enjoyed that chat. I told you she was nothing short of incredible and she really is um she's just one special lady and um yeah I, it was a pleasure to sit opposite her and just chat um, now as promised here's an exclusive early listen to the audiobook of letters on motherhood what follows is a selection of letters from the book read by me i hope you enjoy them bye the book of letters 
Dear Buzz, Buddy and Max, When I was pregnant with each of you, I used to write you letters. Your dad and I would take it in turns to scribble into a book at night. The books themselves weren't anything special. They'd always be empty notebooks we already had in the house. But we'd write about our day, what was going on in our lives and highlight key moments. Like telling people about being pregnant with you, scans, how my body was coping and first kicks. It was a good way for us to document what was happening at the time and for us to focus on each of you and wonder what life would be like when you arrived. Those books are yours to keep. You have one each. I'll be honest here, sometimes I was so tired my writing might be illegible. And Max, sadly yours is half the length of Buzz's, but that's been the third child for you. Looking after Buzz and Buddy and trying to cram in my work left me so knackered I was too tired to write an entry most nights, but that's no reflection of my unconditional love for you. If we ever go for a fourth child, we'll be asking you three to write the letters instead, because otherwise your sibling will get a blank book. The first entry in Buzz's book was the start of our path to becoming your parents. I'd already gone through a miscarriage and a huge part of me was scared I wouldn't get to hold you in my arms either. I always knew I wanted to write letters to you before you were born and beyond, but I waited until I was over 14 weeks pregnant to start, just in case. I had to wait for a time when I felt safe, when I had higher hopes that you'd one day be reading them, even if you were going to find them highly embarrassing. My heart was already full of love and hope for you, and I was worried that by writing to you I was tempting fate. I no longer believe in such nonsense. I actually think writing earlier and voicing those thoughts would have helped me process my fears a lot quicker. It would have helped me deal with my anxiety over carrying you. But not to worry, we're all here now. Writing letters, for me, is a therapeutic way to reflect on the past, be in the present and hope for the future. Motherhood is a massive part of who I am, so I thought I would start writing letters to you and others in my life who have got me to this point and who give me the drive to fill our future with happiness. We don't say how we feel or talk about matters of the heart enough. We don't unashamedly share our hopes and fears. Life is so busy. Even your young lives are jam-packed with school, nursery, playdates and parties and sometimes it's just nice to stop and write. There's something so magical about letters and the way they capture a particular moment or thought. Even if that thought is a fleeting one, it's bound forever and shared. I'm a total sucker for oversharing. Once I start saying how I feel or what I'm doing, I can't stop. At birthdays and Christmas, I can't just sign my name in a card and leave it at that. I gush over the recipient. All my thoughts and feelings come tumbling out as I thank them for being who they are and shower them with love. So enjoy these letters these encapsulated thoughts, these ponderings and findings. Some are for you and some are for others. The other mums who find themselves burying their faces in the kitchen cupboard, feeling overwhelmed, tired and desperate to be enough. Unsure whether to laugh or cry and needing to know they're not on their own. They aren't. There'll be some sense in there. There'll be some nonsense too. I hope there'll be things in my letters that'll help you understand my past and how I came to be yours. Love you, Mama. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. And that's just perfect. Dear boys, OK, this is going to surprise you, but I have flaws.
big ones. I mean, nothing so big that you're going to be rocked to your core, but big enough for you to know I'm a real human, with strengths and weaknesses, successes and failures. I'm not perfect and I don't always get it right, as you've witnessed on occasions where I've lost my shit, sworn in front of you, like the time I broke my middle toe. Who breaks their middle toe or burnt the dinner? I'm telling you this because I want you to celebrate the things that make you the people you are. I want you to embrace that person and see what they have to offer rather than worry about what they might lack. There are going to be times when I disappoint you and the first time it really sinks in that I don't get things right all the time or that I'm just making it up as I go along without having all the answers is going to suck for you. It'll be like realising a fictional character you've loved all your life isn't real. But that's reality. One day you'll see through me, and I hope that doesn't set free resentment or sadness. Nature seems to encourage you to see me and your dad as flawless individuals, perched up high on pedestals for you to try and impress, people to listen to, admire and respect, and that happens without us even forcing the issue. I want you to know that perfection doesn't exist. We will all make mistakes and disappoint ourselves or others. It is inevitable. Yes, you have to try hard in life and make the most of the opportunities that come your way, but I will never want you to feel so bogged down with pressure that things become too much. I never want you to think your failures would make us love you any less. You are also flawed, and that's okay. I accept and love every single bit of you, even if I won't always like it. I can say that because you won't always like the things I do either. I've seen parents who have lost their sons talking on this morning. People who clearly loved and supported their sons so very much. As a mum of boys, I can't help but wonder what is happening that makes young men feel their lives aren't worth living. I wonder why all the love and support their parents gave them wasn't enough. Those sons were snatched away prematurely and a lifetime of what-ifs plagues their parents' grief. If we argue know that nothing will ever be irreparable. If we fight, know that you can always say sorry and that I will accept your apology. If you do something you deem bad, know I'm always there to listen without judgement. If you feel you've failed, know that that particular incident does not eclipse the life you've already lived or the other successes waiting ahead for you. If you feel like you have nothing, know that I am always your something. Know that you are always my everything. If you feel like the only option you have is to skip to the last page of your book, know that we are here, waiting to start more chapters and explore more worlds with you. When you watched films as kids, you were always frightened of the scary or sad bits. Sometimes you'd say you didn't want to watch it anymore, but would always encourage you to carry on wanting you to understand that you have to make it through the bad moments to see the good again. I know it's easy to say with movies, which have a narrative arc, but I hope you manage to see through the tough times your lives will be peppered with. Ask for help. Talk. My whole heart aches at the thought of the alternative. I love you so much. Mama. Alone. Dear Tom, one day they might all leave home. 
and then it will be just you and me again. Can you imagine the quiet that will descend on us and how deserted the house will seem? The fridge will be empty with just the two of us to cook for. There'll be no need to fill it. And we won't have to buy three bunches of bananas a week for fear of running out. Do you think the boys, our men, will want to come back for a Sunday lunch? Or do you think they'll fly the nest and rarely even call? Do you think they'll still want us actively involved and around when given the choice? Or do you think they'll abandon us for their significant others? Gosh, you know me. I'm getting teary now, even though this is well over a decade away. The thought of them leaving and this intensive phase of parenting being over is so overwhelming. They'll no longer be dependent on us for everything. They probably won't value our advice or seek our company. What if they phase us out? Ha! As if. They'll definitely be back for the Disney trips, if nothing else. What do you imagine we'll do with our free time? Will we live differently when we don't have to be there physically for them every day? Will we go travelling and see more of the world? Will we rest? Will we enjoy the lazy mornings we can finally indulge in? Or will we be waking up at the crack of dawn, the 5am starts hardwired into our body clocks after enduring years of sudden yelps from our human alarm clocks? Will we reconnect in a new way? Remember what life was like before and marvel at how familiar it feels, even though we've been through so much and changed so massively since the last time we lived alone. Will we drink more in the evenings when we no longer have to be responsible? Or will we go out running for longer? Will we run together when one of us no longer has to stay with the children? Will we try new things? Join clubs? Find new hobbies? New things to stress over? Or will we feel lighter or more anxious? Will we move abroad or down the road from wherever Buzz, Buddy and Max end up? Or will we continuously find reasons to drop in on them as we're casually driving past, even if they've moved to the other side of London or the world? Will we be lonely? Will we miss them? Will we long for the chaos we're currently living in? Will we still like each other? Will I be enough? Honey... Do you think we're doing a good job? Isn't that the question every parent asks themselves and keeps asking themselves even when their children are fully-fledged adults? I knew about the guilt I would feel as a mum, but there's also a weight that I don't think will ever lift. Do you think our parents feel that? Do you? I'm apprehensive over what life might do to them. I ache over the heartbreak they'll one day have to face... I hurt, knowing I won't be able to wrap them up in cotton wool and keep them safe from life's challenges or obstacles, or be able to guide them at every step like we have so far. We gave them life, but life can be so cruel, it makes my heart feel heavy. I just hope we do enough, that we are enough, that we can continue to provide them with the right tools to see them through whatever life chucks their way. I hope we give them enough guidance and love, yet freedom and independence. Quite frankly, I hope we don't fuck them up and that when the time comes for them to be more independent, they are ready. A month in Bali, followed by months in Australia, New Zealand, South America and Hawaii, does sound lovely, though. Here's to not losing each other on the way there. Said while holding an imaginary pina colada in my hand and raising it in the air. Love you, Giovanna. P.S. I mean, all this is hypothetical. We both know Buzz is never leaving. Expectation versus reality. 
Dear boys, I always wanted to be a mum. My role in any friendship group has always been that of the mother, the one to look after others and put their needs before my own, the one always asking, are you okay, and trying to make everyone happy. I have maternal tendencies running through me, and I know I'm a kind and caring person, but the expectations of what I thought I'd be like as a mother are quite different from reality. I expected life to be full of laughter and smiles all year round. I imagined a house full of uncontainable joy like Santa's workshop, where your dad and I would be jolly and jovial, skipping and laughing and dancing with our delightful little elves who were carefree and cheerful, gleefully singing around our ankles. I expected my children to hang off my every word and to listen to everything I had to say. I expected to have to say something only once for it to be understood. I expected to be like Miss Honey and Matilda, gentle, sweet, encouraging and calm. I expected to take to it like a duck to water, calmly and serenely floating through my days with my children lovingly holding my hand. I expected my children to slip their hands into mine while out and about, two peas in a pod. I expected my children not to throw tantrums because I would be so in tune with their needs. I expected to feel like the luckiest person in the world. My reality of motherhood is that it's not all fun and games. Nothing can be light and fluffy all the time. We are not like Santa, and you are nothing like elves. No one can be happy all the time, and parenthood is just like any other part of life with its highs and lows. There are times when we put on music and dance and sing, and there are times when we're all sitting around laughing, and there are times when I feel so happy I could burst. But it's having the lows that allows the highs to peak and show how wonderful parenthood is at times. My reality of motherhood is that you boys do indeed listen to everything I say but choose to forget anything of real value but pick on the bits that interest you or that you shouldn't hear, like me saying, oh crap, when I realise we're out of nappies and are in the middle of a punami explosion, when one of you has puked all over me or when I simply can't get the coconut oil lid off the jar and have hungry mouths to feed. We're not effing and jeffing all over the place, only when it's warranted, but you pout on those words like a cat on a new pair of shoes. My reality of motherhood is sometimes I have to repeat myself over and over and over again like a frickin' parrot. Don't jump on the sofa. Please don't hit your brother. Time to pop on your shoes. Can you go and brush your teeth now? Leave your willy alone. Leave his willy alone. Everything is repeated at least three times daily without fail. My reality of motherhood is understanding that Miss Honey is either a saint or a fictional character created to show the brutality and neglect of other characters in the book and she is not actually real. She's there for effect. I have friends who are teachers as well as parents and they've found it really difficult to have children who don't listen to them at home when 30 children in the classroom do, especially when pre-kids they would have had teeny tiny bit of judgement towards other parents. Perhaps it would be interesting to go back to Miss Honey after Matilda moved in and see how that changed their dynamic and whether she's still so gentle and calm. My reality of motherhood is there have been times when I haven't felt a natural at motherhood at all. I've questioned myself so many times over the choices I'm making and what the knock-on effects are going to be for the adults you become. What I have learned is that I am my biggest critic and that everyone else is just winging it too. My reality of motherhood is that buttons get pushed testing my patience and that I often fail. Yet I've learned that one reaction doesn't overshadow all the others or set a precedent for what's to come. The future is still to be written, so I will continue learning just like you.
My reality of motherhood is that holding hands can be a huge annoyance for children, especially two-year-olds. You'd rather run away and soar for freedom or throw a huge wobbly at the restriction. There are times you slip into it unknowingly, though, then whip your hand away realising you'd let your guard down. There's one exception, though, and that is when you're scared or unsure, usually of a dog that's about to come past. On those occasions, you've learnt that holding my hand is the perfect remedy for the anxious feeling in your chest and helps you feel safe. In that moment, I could give you a thousand kisses for being so cute. My reality of parenthood is that the role of parent is serious. You have to encourage, teach, discipline and comfort your child. It can be hard work. Some days are harder than others, but the rewards are beyond anything I've felt before. My reality of motherhood is that a new love has been created, a love like no other that is unique for each child. They say love is blind, but your love for your children seems to shine a light on all that's nonsense and helps you focus on what's really important. My reality of motherhood is that I am one of the lucky ones. Love you, Mama.